0: Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, we speak with the editor-in-chief of L.U.K., Kenya Hunt. She tells me more about editing a British title, Being American, and all about their summary new issue. Plus, a kiosk in Vienna dedicated to food-independent publications. And the editor of Eaton on the history of food. And, of course, you can find it in the kiosk I just mentioned in Vienna. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, I had the pleasure to welcome to our studio Kenya Hunt, Editor-in-Chief of Elle UK. Their most recent July-August issue is out now, with the Hein trio on the cover. Kenya tells me more about the changes she implemented at Elle, how it is to edit a British title being American, and more.
1: So I started last March, so it's over a year, but actually my first round at Elle began in 2015. So I began as a acting features director, and then when I left at the end of 2019, I was deputy editor, having had roles as a fashion features director in between. And then I left and then I came back as the world was reopening post-COVID. And it's just been like the most delightful whirlwind ever since.
0: And it's amazing to be editor in chief of such an iconic publication because Elle, I think, you know, is well known around the world. How did you feel when you became the editor in chief? Because, of course, I know you've implemented a few changes, but you have to be quite cautious in a way as well to deal with such a title.
1: Yes. And also, to be clear and honest, you know, they we're working in a, a landscape that's ever-changing. And I don't mean just media, but I mean the world, particularly right now, following that sort of strange, surreal two-year period that we all... You know, have come out of. So I think these are such important, iconic brands, as you said, I think it's really important to protect them and more important now than ever to really stand firm in what makes you who you are, while at the same time, really being innovative and making sure that you're driving your narrative forward. So I think it is a really, it's an interesting balance and a critical one, like it's critically important to get it right.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things, I mean, when I read Elle at times, is the importance for culture. I think compared to other, perhaps, fashion magazines, I think there's so much culture. And especially on this issue, I know actually culture was the focus. But even in other issues, I have to say, how important is that for you?
1: It's important to me because I think it's a huge part of what the brand is here in the UK, you know, since its founding in 1985. But also when you look at the earliest issues in France you know, fashion and beauty is the lifeblood of Elle, but also culture is a really hugely important part of that. And I think Elle has always been a brand that really looks at women as beings who contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be a number of things like, you know, having a a strong love of fashion doesn't preclude a fierce love of art or literature or music or theater or food. You know, you can have it or even celebrity or, you know, the most lowbrow of, you know, guilty pleasures and things like that. So we can have it in a range of Things. And so I feel like coming up as a young magazine reader, back when magazines were just solely print products, Elle always really resonated with me for that reason. And also because it was a place where I could see women who looked like me more frequently than other spaces where I was looking. So I tended to, you know, I thought that they were an early adopter when it comes to brands who would show inclusivity and show it as a sort of natural part of their space. I mean, mind you, you know, fashion has been on a a long journey when it comes to that. But Elle has always resonated with me as a reader for those reasons. And now as an editor, it's just an absolute joy to work on a, a brand that I've always loved.
0: Do you feel when it comes to magazines and perhaps Elle in particular, this topic of, you know, diversity, you know, different showing different models, is it becoming more a natural thing? Do you think that's kind of the new standard, really, for magazines and and for Elle, in particular?
1: One of my favorite stories to tell is about my first issue from start to finish, which was I featured Lizzo on the cover. Great cover. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what I loved about the response to that issue is that Having Lizzo on the cover did not make headlines because she was a black woman. It made headlines for all sorts of other reasons. You know, the fact that we'd wrapped her in Balenciaga tape, the strength of the image, a lot of the 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 behind-the-scenes things that were, you know, the fun sort of bits of video footage that emerged from it, and also the strength of her interview. But there have been various points in my career where a black woman or a non-white woman on a cover would generate headlines. And so I think that itself is a sign of progress. I distinctly recall there was one September where—and uh, this is not so long ago. it's just a few years ago when I was at Elle the first round. Mm. There were a series of September issues on both sides of the Atlantic that featured black women on their covers, including ours at the time. And it generated headlines the world over— Broadsheet newspapers, major digital pure plays, like they were like, we have never seen a September where there were this many black women on the cover and it made headlines. And to me, that felt, even that felt quite sad that, you know, here we are. And it was 2019, if memory serves correctly. Here we are, all the way up in 2019, and this kind of thing is making headlines. And being
0: shocked by it as being, well. I know, being yeah. sh- sh-
1: sh- sh- shocked and surprised and reporting on it. It just seems so, because keep in mind, I've spent the vast majority of my career, writing, chronicling the paucity of inclusion and fashion, you know, as I live it and experience it from my side of things, but also as I see it. So to me, it was just quite, you know, amusing in a way as well. So I, I do think it's a real sign of progress that we can look at the newsstands right now, look at social media, look at the images that are being put out there, and that not be the talking point. Mind you, we still have a long way to go in some other areas, for instance, and also, for instance, looking like, you know, at the power structures behind the scenes and things like that. I, so, I th- you know, I think it's it's very much a work in progress when you're talking about inclusion and representation within fashion as a whole. But I definitely think we need to recognize and celebrate the progress that has taken place. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that I'm curious, I know, I know you're from the U.S. as well. How does it feel to add it a british title because i mean we we hear a lot of kind of british editors going to the us and i'm very curious about this is there a difference in sensibilities as well or perhaps not
1: well you know i i came up as a voracious reader of all the titles we know and love i was an omnivore and very much i grew up with this this Idea of the great British editor editing mm. these iconic American titles, and these were people like Graydon Carter and Anna Winter, many like Tina Brown. There were so many, so many, 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 many. Like I mean, there's so many who are coming to mind. There's quite a long list. Liz Tilbaris. So it, it is quite funny. You know, I do find it quite amusing to be the one lone <laughs> American every year. You're setting
0: a new trend. I'm
1: setting a new But the thing is, I've lived here since 2008, so I really do consider myself a Londoner in so many ways. And I do think it's a gift to have had, you know, significant chunks of time on both sides of the Atlantic to really have that understanding. But there is very much a different sensibility. And so I've always loved... British fashion in particular, it's always really spoke to me. I think there's a very clear difference in aesthetic and sensibility and mindset. For me, I've always found that to be really fascinating and compelling and interesting. So to move here in 2008 was definitely a real learning curve for me. And I've written about it even, you know, my experiences as a black woman and an American woman navigating difference in a new place. I mean, we'll have to have a drink where you you share with me your experiences. The thing that I love about cities like London and New York, I think what makes it so great is that you get people from all over the world who are bringing their own perspectives and points of view to a national culture. So I think there's real beauty in that. And, you know, I have to say, I had two british boys you know i've I've really spent time sort of real meaningful kind of time here that I think has influenced my whole worldview, my approach to writing, my approach to editing, my approach to visuals. And I, I you know, but to go back to your original question, there is very much a, a, a very clear difference. And I think it's one that needs to be celebrated and respected and celebrated, basically.
0: And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel talking to some American editors, British editors, even the way magazines are distributed, because yes. correct me if I'm wrong, I think in the U.S., there's still quite a lot of subscription. I mean, the country is massive. I mm-hmm. mean, I feel in the UK, like when people pop to the shop and they still kind of buy a magazine, even the way people interact to magazines is different in a way. Yes. Would you say that's true?
1: Very much so. Although, you know, I will say that subscriptions, particularly during the COVID period, mm. you know, we really saw a real uptake in subscriptions across the board for a number of reasons. But here, People definitely interact with the physical object in a different way. I think you, you definitely see more interaction and engagement with print here than and then stateside, for sure, for a range of reasons. That's also just yet another reason that I love love being here and I love the privilege of editing L,
0: Especially on a sunny day like today. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, give us some of the highlights of the July-August issue. As I said, for me, it was wonderful because there was a lot of culture. I mean, even here on the cover. Here comes summer, big sounds, reads, films and looks. And of course, the wonderful trio highing there on the cover as well.
1: Yes. So July, August, I have to say, with Al, you know, we exist across so many different touch points. So we have our monthly, our big monthly moment, which I like to look at as an event. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to look at the... The magazine is part of being a whole, where we have all of these other elements that sort of support what we do in the issue. And when July, August, when I first started thinking about that, it was during show season. And our group fashion director, Avril Mayer, and I were covering the shows. And then I came back and began talking with my colleagues, women like my associate editor, Lena de Casparis and executive editor, Alice Wignall, about the fact that there was a, a really stunning and striking paucity of bodies that weren't sample sized on the runway. And so to me, it felt like a very clear and real regression. And it's one that, you know, a lot of my colleagues and peers, meaning editor peers, have noticed as well. Like it was a real topic of conversation, a topic Mm. of debate, of conversation. And at Elle, and the time that I've been here, but even predating me, we have really looked to show, we aim to show the fullness of what womanhood looks like across the spectrum of gender, racial identity, age, shape and size. But when it comes to women in fashion in particular, you know, there's certain set of challenges as well, because for instance their sample size is it can mm-hmm. be quite difficult. So one of the, it started with my desire to address this, look at it in a uh, more substantive way. And then also summer was coming. So even before that, I had I knew in my head that I for the July-August issue, I wanted to sort of celebrate the culture of summer. You know, I'm very bookish by nature, as are many of my colleagues in L. I'm a huge music lover, and I thought this was the perfect issue to explore all those things. But then show season happened like, we can't not address this in a real sort of substantive and meaningful way. So that's, I think that is the coming together of this issue in a nutshell. So looking at Haim, who are very L in that they are waving a flag for rock music which is a genre that has had its you know its highs and lows but I think right now you know we can easily say that they're the most prominent the most visible women in that space operating right now and so they'll be here performing this summer and it seemed like a really beautiful opportunity to celebrate them and then within the world of books you know so many really dear friends of mine are driving meaningful change in that space women like Charmaine Lovegrove then authors I love like Kendi's Carti Williams it's a real sort of cross-section Of women that we have, this really beautiful portfolio in the issue. And then the issue of size, as I mentioned before, that I really wanted to address that in in a meaningful feature and package. Again, we look at it from issue to issue. Our collection stories and our bigger fashion issues, we always look to feature models who aren't just sample size. But I think there's a lot of work that we're looking to do. There even more, you know, and also I think, you know, there's something to a piece of work that we also need to do around able-bodiedness and how that is the default, you know, and and has been for so long and we need to, to work to change and shift that as well. So those were the things that I was thinking about along with the team in terms of producing this issue.
0: And of course, yeah, I know you're not going to reveal this, so don't worry. But of course, the next issue is September. Are you excited for this year or for the the future plans for L.U.K. this year?
1: I'm very excited because September in particular will be a very big month for us, mm-hmm. which I can I can give you more details around that soon. And we're very much in the throes of producing that issue. And it's, it's really exciting for us. And it just feels like the next step in the chapter of L. So I like for each issue to kind of build on the next as well. But Al we've always been a very forward facing brand, a real great place of discovery, and so as a result we like to champion new talent, but also constantly sort of look at and explore what the female gaze looks like and also how that is evolving as our language and our world evolves as you know, as well. So I think there's lots of themes that we've been exploring throughout the year that I look forward to building on for September and beyond.
0: I look forward to see it. And, and Kenny, one thing that I'm just curious as well, because, you know, there are many different uh, L's around the world. I mean, do you work with other editors or perhaps not as much? As, I'm, I'm very curious about that.
1: Well, as long as I've worked at L, again, you know, I'm speaking to my early days with the title back in 2015, there has always been a spirit of collaboration across all the editions. Mm -hmm. The editors-in-chief will convene at the Hotel Creon before the Chanel show. Every season, like clockwork, there's always a breakfast. We have a conference coming up in Versailles. So we, we definitely, we share information, we share stories when it makes sense. For instance, last year we featured Adele on the cover of our October issue, and that was like a really beautiful moment of collaboration in which she appeared on many of our editions. We've done it in the past for... Bigger launches with bigger cover stars, for instance, when Beyonce launched Ivy Park, that was a, a massive global international, like an international L moment that landed across all of our editions globally. The same with Rihanna around one of her launches around Fenty. So that's when we will give you a a really big, compelling global L hit. We also do it for some smaller moments where where it makes sense for us, but there is definitely a real spirit of collaboration and kind of sisterliness across all of the titles, while at the same time really celebrating what makes each of our local editions what they are. And really respecting the market that we're in like the nature of our, our countries and our cities and those little localized quirks and trends and things that are really unique to the places you that can't we remove live in. those
0: you can't remove those I no, mean, that's what yeah. makes a magazine special right that
1: makes, I mean because yeah. for instance you'll sit in Paris or Milan and you'll see a collection come down but the real beauty is in the, the different ways that we then style it out and make it our own. You know, the, the way that I'm going to wear what I wear and the pieces that I choose will look very different from someone who lives in a different place. Because, you know, we're influenced by the spaces we inhabit, but also we have our own unique identities aside from that. So I think it's those are the, those are the, like, the thrilling spaces to really dig into and to celebrate and to visualize and explore.
0: Thank you very much, Kenny. It's been a pleasure. And their July-August issue is out now. We head to Vienna now, which in fact is the winner of the most recent Monaco's Quality of Life survey, which is featured in our most recent issue, which is on the newsstands right now. But let's talk about Ferment Kiosk, Vienna's very first culinary kiosk, which I think is a fantastic idea. Located at Novara 27, in Vienna's 2nd District, Ferment Kiosk is the ultimate destination for readers with an appetite. The studio store offers a meticulously curated collection of over 30 indie food magazines from around the globe. I spoke with the owner, Daniela Vibogen.
2: We started Ferment Kiosk, um, so the idea we basically started almost two years ago. I have a deep passion for uh, print culture and through my work as a communications consultant, I encounter a lot of amazing indie food magazines. I love to read them. I love to collect them. I have a private library of them at home and I always collected them while traveling across Europe, visiting indie magazine shops and um, always were a bit sad that Vienna didn't offer something like that. Because if you enter these shops, like they are really amazing. They, they create a sense of community. You can delve into really amazing magazines, topics. They're such inspiring places. And so we had the idea of doing a pop-up in the fall of 2021, bringing our favorite food magazines to Vienna. We started a pop-up, but then it was cut short through a lockdown in Vienna because it was during the pandemic. But nevertheless, we had two weekends of pop-up and the feedback of our customers was really amazing. So we took time after the pop-up. We had basically two weekends of pop-up in the fall of 2021. We then took time to refine the concept and opened a permanent shop in April 2022. And we're now having our shop open every Friday afternoon and yeah, welcoming customers to delve into our collection of indie food magazines.
0: That's amazing. And I love the fact that some of those titles, if you lived in Vienna, you couldn't get hold of some of them because it's a really curated list. And so tell us, you, people can go and visit, of course, on a Friday afternoon. And if someone is in Vienna, can they send an email perhaps to the Furman Kiosk and see if they can arrange a visit as well?
2: Absolutely. We're also open upon request. Friday afternoon is like a spot that is reserved for everybody to come in and also take the time to browse our magazines. We're nestled away from the the bustling shopping areas in Vienna. It's a calm neighborhood in Vienna's second district. And we offer a big table Uh, we have armchairs people can take a seat and browse the magazines discover new magazines they might haven't seen before we always try to add more new magazines to our collection to broaden our selection but also broaden the horizons of our audience
0: Tell us a bit more about the selection of the titles. You know, you don't need to mention all of the titles, but give us a little take on what titles you find quite interesting that you're stalking at the moment. And are there any Austrian titles by any chance?
2: So... I'm personally a big fan of uh, Bomb magazine, which is a magazine that showcases women in food business and tells the stories and the achievements of women who are working in the food business and highlights their achievements. So I'm a big fan of this one, for example. Then I'm also a big fan of magazine F, which is a magazine from South Korea. It highlights one special ingredient of food in each issue and delves into the cultivation process, retail and significance in local food cultures in each issue then we also offer fair magazine which is also a very interesting magazine for us because it combines two of our favorite topics food and travel so you can travel to a different destination in each issue and locals guide you through the local food culture there and show you their favorite restaurants and yeah that's one really exceptional magazine then you asked about Austrian magazine. We have, for example, Sword and Wonder, which is a magazine that delves into the local food startup scene or food movements in different locations. We have the Reykjavik issue on the wall in the back of me. So, and then we also have like very niche magazines on our magazine wall, like we have a special magazine that covers tea culture, it's called 80 degrees magazine from Portugal. And then we have a special magazine about cheese, about the culture of cheese. It's from UK. And we have Solo, which covers coffee culture, it's from Spain. And then we of course have different magazines for wine enthusiasts like Novrot, Pipette, and Gluglou.
0: What a selection. It's amazing. I mean, and the titles are very creative. And one thing I find interesting about food magazines, for example, I am terrible in the kitchen and I'm I'm not joking, but I love reading about food, you know, because it's kind of relates to travel as well. First of all, are you a good cook, actually, by any chance?
2: Well, (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. Yes, I think the combination of food and travel is really fascinating. So I studied cultural and social anthropology back in at the University of Vienna. And I think this is also one of the reasons why I find this uh, combination of food and travel so amazing. I think within these magazines, you can dive into different food cultures from the comfort of your own home. You can experience different food cultures you wouldn't necessarily meet even when traveling there because they're very indie the food magazines. They cover very specific topics, Very, they get beyond the surface of mainstream food topics. They delve really, really deep into specific cultures and communities. And that's what's so amazing about these magazines.
0: And Daniela, I just want to ask more about the business side, because I did have a look at your website. I mean, it looks great. And I think you can also order things online as well. And, and you have the firm and Journal as well. So tell us about the other aspect of the business as well.
2: Yeah, my, my, my actual business is um, I'm having a boutique communications agency for artisan food products. So I try to help artisan food producers to optimize their communication. The name derives from the the, the similarities between fermentation and communication. Like you, you transform what's there and give it a bit more depth and richness through some input, basically. And that's what I do for my main business.
0: Thank you, Danielle. And next time in Vienna, I'll make sure to pay a visit. and now a title that is in fact stocked at Ferment Kiosk. Eaten is a print magazine published three times a year, uncovering forgotten stories from the global history of food. The summer issue is themed around vegetables, from the origins of the baby carrot to the importance of the taro plant in Hawaii. Monaco's Charlotte Banks spoke to the editor, Emmeline Rood, about the surprising appetite for food history among writers and readers.
3: So after I graduated from college, I started working for chefs in New York City, and that was incredibly glamorous, and I went to amazing parties, and I ate incredible food, but I was always incredibly broke. So to try to make a little more income, I started freelance writing. Because I'm a huge nerd, the pieces I always wanted to write were about the history of food, but it's really hard to get most publications to publish food stories. I mean, not food stories history stories, because they have to be very relevant, and it's hard to make history relevant. But as a result, I'd always have all these ideas that no one ever wanted. And I figured I couldn't be the only one on earth who thought the history of food was interesting. So in 2017, I did a Kickstarter to say, hello, internet, this is my dream. Tell me what you think of it with money. And it was funded, which is amazing. And five, six years later, I'm still publishing Eaton to this day. It's really impressive
4: that you've managed to not only last this long, I guess, but also every time I read a new copy of the magazine, it seems to just get better and better. I mean, you've just released issue number 17, I think it is. Um, Congratulations, by the way. How has the journey
3: been from issue one until now? Rocky, to say the least. I'm sure all of the other publishers you've talked to have very similar stories. Like financially, it's... An absolute nightmare to be in print, at least initially. So the first few years were very hairy. I was lucky that I had another source of income. I was a PhD student. Obviously, I wasn't very wealthy, but I was housed, I was fed, I had enough. But yeah, and I also had a huge crisis after edition number three. My designer decided that she just wanted to do something else, which is fine. But uh, the magazine was so broke that I couldn't hire a new one. So I had to teach myself how to design. So now Eden is just me. I design, I edit, I do the social media, I do the accounting, probably pretty poorly. But yeah, now that I, I'm just in a groove, right now I I just know what I'm doing, which is quite nice after many years of just having no idea and flying by my bootstraps, basically.
4: That's really impressive that you do the whole operation yourself. I was going to ask you about the visual presentation because it's something that is really impressive and makes Eaton stand out on the shelf. It's kind of like a mix of illustration and archive media, but it could also be quite whimsical. I'm thinking about the one from the most recent issue illustrating an article about the origin of baby carrots in which there's a 19th century Slovenian painting of a baby whose head has been replaced by a carrot. Do you have a strategy for how you're going
3: to design each issue? Well, I'm very glad you liked that. I was very proud of the baby carrot art. Each issue is centered on a theme. Um, So that last edition theme was vegetables. So I'll send out a call for pitches, see what the magical world of writers come back to me with. And I'll just choose the things that are most interesting, but obviously with a balance of geography, of time period of subject, because obviously you don't want too many, you don't want all the articles to be about broccoli or carrots. You want some to be about songs. You want some to be about people. You want some to be about places. So it's all a balance. So that comes first. And from there, once the pieces are done, I take a look and then I go on to the many archives there are available on the Internet and I see what public domain images there are. And I just sort of go from there and sort of just see what there is, what is interesting, what my very limited technical abilities as the designer. Like, I think I have a good visual sense, but I'm I'm just kind of bootstrapping it on Photoshop. So it's what I can do. Yeah, just sort of what, what the universe provides and I sort of bring it all together. And if there isn't something archival, this is a huge problem with archives in general. They tend to be very Western. They tend to be very white male heavy dominated. And I want my pieces not to be just that perspective, but that means there's not always public domain images from things, say from ancient Egypt, from China, from other parts of the world. And so if there's certain articles that just don't have good archives, I will commission a illustrator. But generally I try to do archives first because they're more interesting and they're so beautiful And they're free and they're free to remix and they're free to just go wild. Like, I can put a baby carrot on a 19th century painting and it's totally
4: fair game. If someone wants to grab a copy, where could they go? And how do people tend to access your publication?
3: They can either go onto the website, etonmagazine.com, or I just have a growing army of stockists around the world who have copies of the magazine. I think the two vehicles where people discover Eaton are either through the stockists, because I mean, they're lovely, and a lot of them tend to sort of just put Eaton at the front of their food section, which is great. Having good covers really helps to sell. And the other one is through Instagram. I know it's not quite as hit, but I just love to post just random, cool, old images that I find that are related to food, and people seem to... Enjoy that. (laughs) It's weird. Sometimes, like, if I have a very good Instagram post, I can see an actual upsurge in orders just because more people have discovered Eaton for the first time. But I think those are the two main avenues. The stockists are are wonderful, and and I think they do a great job of selling the magazine just by having it in their store and displaying it in lovely ways.
0: Thank you, Emily. And issue 17 of Eaton is out now. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. And that's it for this week's show. If you have any comments or queries, email me at fp at We'll be back next Saturday at the same time, 10 a.m. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com, and subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Before we go, a little song for you. From Austria, it's Wolfram, featuring Pam. What is it like? You've been listening to The Stack I'm Fernando Gustavo Pacheco. It's a goodbye from me.